The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. All the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to eat and to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ringer on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard the music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he came, became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, Listen, for all of these years I have been working like a slave for you and, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. And amen. So I am a psychotherapist by trade, so I tend to pay attention when um, people say things that might be Freudian slips, and I noticed Fred really had a hard time with the word patriarchy. <laughs> I, I, you know, I just, I just, there, there might be some things to talk about there. I'm, I'm not real sure about that. It's the most famous story Jesus ever told story of a father who had two sons. And the younger of the sons decided it was time to separate himself from home and head off on his own in the world, which is, in fact, typical adolescent behavior. 
But did you ever notice that boys and girls separate themselves from home in very, very different ways? Boys at the age of 14 or 15, and already they've only been using about 100 words a month, and now they drop to about three words a month. <laughs> Most of the time they just communicate through grunts. When they communicate at all, because for the most part they get their driver's license, they leave, you don't see them for the next five years. When you do, it's sullen faces coming home just for laundry or food. But I'm here to tell you, if you're willing to wait till they're 30, your five-year-old son will come back. You just have to understand it's going to take a while. They bodily separate themselves from home. That's not how girls do it. Girls also differentiate during their teen years, but they take their brother's allotment of words, add thousands to it, do not leave the house, stay inside the house and tell you all day, every day, what a terrible parent you are. Possibly the worst that has ever been created since the beginning of time. And they begin to tell you the specific things wrong with you. Now, there are two reasons they tell you the specific things wrong with you. The first is because there's a lot wrong with you. They hit their teen years, they start figuring out what those things are, they feel like someone needs to talk about it, and of course, it's them. But there's a second reason they find things wrong with you. They need to find things wrong with you. I mean, who would leave the comfort of the people who care for your absolute every need unless there were some things seriously wrong with those people? So to be able to separate themselves from home, they need to find things wrong with you. This differentiation or individuation is common for all teens, but most of the time during this time frame, our children do not want to see us dead. I say most of the time, because apparently in this particular story that was not the case. The younger son comes to his father, asks for the one-third of the family inheritance that would eventually be his, but in their culture as in ours, you didn't receive your inheritance until your parents had died. So when he asked for his inheritance, he basically is saying to his father, I wish you were dead. And note there would be any one of a number of responses that would have been appropriate in that setting. There's no one right way to parent. It would have been appropriate if the father had said, yeah, right, I'm going to give you your family inheritance. You can't even clean your room. That's more than likely what I would have done. But for whatever reason... The father goes ahead and chooses to give the son the one-third of the family inheritance that will eventually be his, and the son immediately takes off, goes to Florida to a party university where he drinks away his freshman year. You know this story. <laughs> takes him about six years to get a degree, and the degree he gets is in English literature. Yeah, you're going to be able to get a job with that. So he decides to go back to the only thing he knows, farming, but now there's a famine and the only job available to him is feeding pigs and Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience and they know there's no animal any more dirty than a pig. How do you feed pigs in that day? You go out into the fields and you shake the carob trees which causes the pods to fall to the ground and he's out in the fields shaking the carob trees wishing he could eat the pods that are falling to the ground when Jesus tells us he came to his senses. It's an interesting phrase, don't you think? Did you ever come to your senses? Best I can figure, there are three 
primary ways in which we come to our senses. The first is when we experience guilt. Guilt is, in fact, a positive emotion. There's a huge difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is knowing that you have done something bad. Shame is thinking you are bad. There's no positive purpose to shame for any of us in the human species. Shame is always negative. But guilt does serve a positive purpose. To recognize that we have done something wrong, that we have harmed another, that we have violated our own conscience, that we have brought pain into the lives of another. Guilt is, in fact, a positive human emotion. And when we know we've hurt another, we have to learn how to navigate through that. And, of course, the first thing is soften the most difficult, which is to accept that we have hurt another. We as a species tend to be awfully good at blaming other people. We find very intricate ways to take the blame away from ourselves and put it in other places. And so when we finally have to own the fact that we've hurt another, it's extremely difficult, extremely painful. And the first thing we need to do then is to make restitution, which often is just symbolic because the damage has already been done. Then we have to think to ourselves, seriously examine our hearts. Why did we behave in that way? And how can we make sure we don't behave in that way in the future? Then we request forgiveness from the person we've harmed. Whether or not they give it, that's their issue. We have no control over that. But then the last step of coming to deal with our guilt is the hardest of all. It's to forgive ourselves for the fact that we hurt another. All of us get a lot of practice in working through the stages of guilt because all of us make plenty of mistakes in which we hurt other people. But that's not the only way in which we come to our senses. We come to our senses when we hurt another, but there are other ways in which we come to our senses that are a little bit more deep and far more subtle and fewer people come to them. One is to realize for most of us, we care more about belonging than we do about the truth. That's right. As a species, we tend to care more about belonging than we do about the truth. For the last 500 years or so, we've had this notion in the Western world, thanks to people like Francis Bacon or Isaac Newton or Rene Descartes, that we are primarily a rational species. That what drives us as a species is the truth of things. That to us, truth matters more than anything else. This was a notion we carried with us in the Western world for about 500 years. That's why in the 19th and 20th centuries, thousands of people would come to great halls to see a debate. And the purpose of that debate was to figure out who held the facts. Where was the truth? Because we were quite convinced we were a species that more than anything else wanted to know the truth. The only problem is, that's not the truth. As a species, we've always cared about belonging more than we've cared about the truth. So I wasn't out of seminary a couple of years when I realized that the main teachings that I'd heard in seminary about the six passages that talk about being gay and having a gay relationship were being interpreted wrongly. That those passages were not saying you could not be in a relationship with someone of the same sex. 
But in my denomination, that was not something I could publicly talk about. It was a denomination of 7,000 churches. I had a national leadership position. I was the fifth generation, five, of leaders within that denomination. And belonging meant more to me than the truth. So I told myself a story that I would bring about change from within the denomination. Took me an awfully long time, come to think of it, until I transitioned. I never took a stand in favor of the truth that God loves all of us just as we are, regardless of whom we want to go to bed with or who we want to go to bed as. But I was more interested in belonging than I was in the truth and did not realize at the time people were dying because of the church's stand against the gay population. I work as a therapist and often clients will come to me and they'll get to that point where they're ready to acknowledge the abuse that took place at the hands of a family member, often the patriarch of the family, often the father. And so they're finally ready to confront the perpetrator about the abuse. And they'll say to me, now the rest of the family was very aware that this abuse was taking place, so I know when I confront the perpetrator, everyone else in the family is going to join in because they know the truth of the matter, and I have to tell my client, yeah, that's not my personal experience. My personal experience is that the rest of your family members will be more interested in not disrupting the family system than they will be in the truth of the matter. You might confront your father, more than likely the rest of your siblings, your mother, yeah, they are going to stand back and leave you twisting in the wind. Oh, surely that would never happen. Oh, and I'm so sorry to say most of the time that's exactly what happens. Because as humans, we tend to want to belong more than we want to know the truth. This is why I say all the time, the truth will set you free, but it's going to make you miserable first. Coming to our senses includes that deeper step of acknowledging that we're more interested in belonging than we are in the truth. And making that commitment to be committed to the truth no matter how painful it might be. But there's a deeper way yet in which we come to our senses. It's in acknowledging those parts of ourselves that we're not likely to ever get a hold of. Now, all of us have strengths. And fortunately, our strengths tend to remain with us throughout our lives. One of the biggest jobs we have as parents is to identify our children's strengths, help them understand those strengths, because they will be with them throughout their days. Our strengths are consistent in our lives. So are our weaknesses. Our shadow sides. Our shadow sides are our strengths taken to an extreme. So I've known since I was a child that one of my strengths was words, speaking words, writing words. Words have been very good to me. By the way, I have another TED talk coming out on TED.com on Tuesday which should pretty quickly add another million or so views, which is kind of cool. You know, words have been very good to me, whether writing them or speaking them. These are my strengths. But those strengths create shadow sides. 
Words are also my weakness. Words taken to an extreme are my ongoing, consistent, abiding shadows. I ran a large nonprofit for about 35 years. Not long ago, I was talking to my former executive assistant, and she was talking about what it was like to work with me, and she said, well, one of the things we discovered is you had to say something about six times before we actually believed you. And new people would come in, and you would say something, we're going to go this direction, and they'd get all excited or all bothered by it, and we'd say, yeah, she's just thinking out loud. Just kind of let her go. Once she says it over and over and over again, well, now maybe you might be able to trust it, because I do tend to think aloud. And there's one phrase that I have to say to myself all the time. Paula, it's all right to have an unexpressed thought. <laughs> See, this is the problem. Our strengths are also our weakness. It's all right, Paula, to have an unexpressed thought. Oh, my thoughts get me into trouble. We need to be able to see, understand, and acknowledge our abiding shadows. These are the parts of us that remain with us throughout life, that get us in trouble throughout life. This is why by the time we're 50, Nikos Kazantzakis says, we have the face we deserve. Because we find ourselves making the same mistakes time and again and again and again, and we think to ourselves, really? I still haven't gotten a hold of this yet? Yeah, no, you haven't, and you likely never will. This is the deepest part of coming to our senses, acknowledging our abiding shadows that will always remain with us. We will never be able to get rid of them. The best we can do is to put a collar on them, put a leash on them, and try to stop them from biting all the other people we tend to come around in our lives. The most we can hope for is to do as little damage as possible with these abiding shadows and to quickly recognize when we have done damage, to acknowledge it, and to ask forgiveness for it. I'd like to tell you that as you get older, because I'm older than dirt, you finally get a hold of these abiding shadows, but the truth is you really kind of don't. The great Jungian analyst James Hollis calls this existential guilt. The guilt that is here just by existing, knowing these shadow sides you're not really ever going to be able to get rid of. This is the deepest part of coming to your senses. Now, which one of these things do you think the younger son came to? Ordinary guilt? Or was it this sense that we want to belong more than we want to know the truth? Or was it understanding his abiding shadows? I think likely it was none of the three. I think the sense to which he came was hunger. He is starving. So he puts together a plan with his words. He's going to go back home, tell his father that he's sorry. No, he can't be a son anymore, but his father can at least give him some food as a servant, and that'll work for him. So he heads back home, and when he's still a long way from the house, he sees his father running toward him. Now, the father is running toward him while he's still a long way from the house because the father's been out looking for him the whole time. The father's been out looking for him the whole time. Now, if I have squandered my family's fortune on loose living, and I'm still a long way from home, and I see my father running toward me, I'm probably going to turn around and run the other way. 
this is not likely going to be a good reunion. But the father catches up with him, says to the servants, bring a ring, sandals, and a robe, signs of sonship, honor, and power, because my son who was lost has been found. And we must celebrate and note, we still don't know if this kid's truly sorry or not. We just know he's hungry. We call it the story of the prodigal son. I don't think that's its name. It's not a story about the younger son at all. It's a story about something else. Enter the older brother. Now, the older brother has stayed at home all along, only he's working with one-third less farmland because his younger kid brother took off with a third of the family inheritance. He's been resentful about that, but he works hard all day, every day, heads home from the fields. There's a party at the house. Since his servants in, servants come back. Um, yeah, you're... you're kid brother's home and your dad kind of killed a fatted calf and they're having a big party and he wants you to come in and join with him and, and the older son refuses to go in and eat with the father. Now make no mistake about it, it's a tacky thing to squander the family fortune on loose living, any culture, any time. But in that particular culture, it was every bit as egregious an offense to refuse to eat with your father. That was something that was unheard of for someone to refuse to eat with their father. So what did the father do when he gets this message? He says, ah, you know that kid. He always sees the glass half empty. Just leave him out there. Is that what the father does? No. No, the father heads to where the older son is, and his servants are saying, why are you spending any time with this older kid? He's one of the dark Lutherans, you know? He always sees things terribly. The father says, he too is my son. He goes out, and the son does not ask forgiveness. Instead, the son blesses the father. I have worked my fingers to the bone. I don't get so much as a young goat. My kid brother squanders a family fortune. You killed a fatted calf. What is wrong with this story? The father says to the older son, Oh, everything I have is yours. It's always been yours. It always will be yours. But your brother was lost and has been found, and we must celebrate. You say, well, that's not very fair. Exactly. It's not very fair. We want justice. We want American justice. We want people to get what they deserve. Well, this is a story about justice. But it's a story about the Hebrew concept of justice that comes from the word sadak, S-A-D-A-Q, which doesn't mean giving people what they deserve, not American justice, but giving people what God wants them to have. So now we begin to understand this is not a story about a younger son who comes to see the error of his ways, repents, and returns home. This is not a story of an older son who stays at home and keeps the rules. It's not a story of either son at all. Both of them were a problem. It's a story about a father. A father who loves because it's what the father does. A father who loves because it's who the father is. A father who knows his own shadow sides and is more than willing to tolerate the shadow sides of his sons. 
It is a father who loves because it is the core of his being to love. And it's the most marvelously outrageous story that's ever been told in the history of mankind. So when I transitioned genders, I knew that in all likelihood I would be rejected by my parents. My father was a fundamentalist pastor. My mother was even more conservative than my father. And so when I transitioned, sure enough, my mother said to my father that he had no choice, that they had to disown me, and so they disowned me. My father was turning 93, and I took a chance and decided to call him on his birthday. He took my call. We talked for about a half hour. And a couple of weeks later, I contacted him again and asked if I could come for a visit. And he said, yeah, that, that would be okay. Much to my surprise, about a week before I went to their home in Kentucky, he said, your mother is going to be here too. And so I was able to meet with them a week later, had a marvelous three-hour meeting. And at the end of our time together, as I stood up to go, my father stood up with me. And he said, Paula, first time he ever called me Paula. He didn't name me Paul because his father wanted to name me Paul. And his father wanted him to name me Paul because he really believed in the Apostle Paul. I knew what it took. He said, Paula, Paula, I don't understand this, but I am willing to try. My father was 93 years old. And he was willing to try. What more could I ask? My father knew that the most important thing was to honor the journey of his child. My mother passed away not long after that. Dad died not quite two years ago this past week. I was speaking at the university back in West Virginia where he got his master's degree. I had to drive through my hometown. I went, I went to the cemetery to their graves. It's only the second time I've seen them. He died in the middle of COVID, so we couldn't have a funeral. It was raining. And I fell to my knees. And prayed to God, thank you for giving me a father who loved his two children. And thank you for being a father, mother, spirit, who loves me just as I am. And if you understand that, you understand the story of the father who had two sons. Will you pray with me? God, thank you. Thank you for loving us just as we are. Thank you for your kind of justice, not giving us what we deserve, but giving us what you want us to have.
Thank you for the story. For the Christ who told the story. For the truth that permeates the creation of that story. Thank you for love. For this we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.